All right, happy Thursday, Syracuse fans. This is the Locked On Syracuse podcast. Tyler Aki and Tim Leonard. The weeks are starting to fly a little bit, aren't they, Tim? I mean, yeah, I feel time is like, passing now. Yeah, and, and may, I don't know. Maybe the pods are, are starting to to get me through these weeks and, and shortening them down a little bit. But hey, whatever works, it, it's it's working for me. So be sure to check us out every single day here on the Locked On Syracuse podcast, the only place to get daily Orange podcasts. Going to be a lot of basketball talk today, and we'll also get into a little bit of football over-unders. That number was released last week, but we really haven't had time to get into it because of all the news that's been going down with Syracuse in both the transfer portal, some football recruiting stuff, but we will dive into that over-under figure that Vegas put out for the Orange for this upcoming football season. But today, we're going to dedicate a lot of the podcast towards just the overall depth of this Syracuse team and kind of the the depth chart we'll take a deep dive into I think the best way to start this off is really to look at the the backcourt of this team because you've got two guys your, your anchors are coming back at the top of that zone in Joe Girard and Buddy Bayheim, who's not coming back it's Bryson Goodine and he was the only other real guard that saw playing time last season. Now Jalen well, Howie a little bit. Yeah, and, and a little bit of Howard Washington who also won't be coming back. Jalen Carey was the starter to begin the year last year. He's not coming back because he's transferring away as well. At least that's the notion that that's been put out there so far. It doesn't seem like he's going to come back. So with all that said, you're bringing in a couple other pieces. You got Kadari Richmond coming in, Alan Griffin coming in, his status on whether or not he can play still kind of up in the air, but seems like there's options there. But at the end of the day, you've got two guys who a season ago, I mean, when you dive into how many minutes they played, Buddy Beheim played almost 90% of the available minutes. Meanwhile, Joe Girard at a little over 80%. And keep in mind with Gerard, he wasn't a starter for the first handful of games as well. Yeah, I mean, I think these two guys are going to get the exact same amount of minutes as they did last year, maybe even a little bit more, because now Hughes is gone, and given Bayheim's track record in history, there's usually one guy that gets 40 minutes, right? Or at least right around that, and they don't come out of the game. Probably the best bet this year is Buddy Beheim because Gerard's yeah. going to have to bring the ball up and down, so he's wasting a little bit more energy. And last year, you know, Beheim kind of rotated who he threw in to take out, kind of based on how Gerard or Beheim was playing. But he usually spelled one of the two in the first half for five or six minutes, and usually that was Bryson. Maybe sometimes that was Howard Washington. Kind of depended on what the situation in the game and how things were going, but. To me, I think Buddy's going to play close to 40 minutes, and then you'll probably get 35 minutes or so from Gerard, and at the off chance that he's in foul trouble or at the off chance that he starts out a little bit sluggish or you just want to take him out for five minutes in the first half, it's probably going to Richmond because, let's face it, he's kind of your only other option to bring the ball up, and even he's not really supposed to be doing that necessarily. I'd like to see him more as an off-ball type of role, but this is the situation we're in. And I think it's going to be stressed even more so this year that this is going to be a, a two-guard lineup just because of the fact that there really isn't an offseason. There is no summer workouts. At least that's the way it's looking right now with everything going on in the world that, yeah. okay, Richmond's not going to have a chance to to go in and get some of those extra reps. 
it's going to be a familiarity thing. And and I'm not just talking about Syracuse. I mean, this is going to be a national thing where right. it's almost going to feel like Jim Beheim was slightly ahead of the curve in that regard because this is what he's used to doing and, and only playing six or seven guys a game at most, it feels like, most of the time. So I think, yeah, this is going to be a national thing now where you're going to see the returning players get almost the entirety of the minutes. Now, it, it's different if you have some stud top recruit that's coming in, some five-star, some McDonald's All-American, or if you're Duke or Kentucky, and that's just the way you operate year to year these days. But that's mm-hmm. not the case here at Syracuse. You have what is considered a, a veteran-level backcourt. You're going to have two returning starters in your backcourt. And for them to not see 35 minutes a game, I think – if you're making that prediction right now, the only way that I don't see either of these guys getting that is if there is some sort of injury and you can't right. predict that. So that's my thing is the more I think about this, they basically didn't really have a backup point guard last year. Like I know they did. It's just Beheim never really used them right. based on the minutes they were playing. It wasn't like we saw Howard Washington come in for – big stretches in the second half or something. I mean, unless they were up big, like in the Georgia Tech game or something of that nature. But they basically aren't changing a ton in terms of how much they're going to have to rely on Gerard and Bayheim in the minutes. And in that regard, maybe it's a little overblown, like, oh, you need a backup point guard. But the big kicker here is what you mentioned at the end there. If there's an injury they're absolutely screwed. Like, they don't they don't have anything. If there's an injury to one of these backcourt guys, and if it's Beheim or Gerard, really, if it's Gerard especially, then you're really out of, in big trouble because you've got to go deep into your bench and try to figure out who's going to bring the ball up, and you're probably rotating lineups a lot, and that would be a total nightmare. So that's where this year it really becomes more imperative that the backcourt stays healthy, but... The more I thought about it in the minutes, when you look at how many minutes were played last year, I don't think it's really that big of a deal for Syracuse that they don't have a backup point guard because they never really had a backup type of point guard role built in anyway. The one thing about that, though, for me at least, looking at this team is if they needed a backup point guard, say there was an injury to Gerard, you had one. You you had two, actually, with Washington and Goodine. Yeah. This time around, who knows? Because, I mean, in our talk with Tristan Kizik, it doesn't seem like Alan Griffin's one of those guys who can be a ball handler for you. I mean, even at times we saw Elijah Hughes be a primary ball handler for this team. But according to what Tristan told us, that's not necessarily a strong suit of Alan Griffin's game. He's better kind of getting the ball and moving off the ball and and catch and shoot and, and that sort of nature. Ball handling isn't his game. So if Gerard goes down, then you're really scrapping because Buddy Beheim, I don't think, is the guy you want bringing the ball up the floor for you. Elijah Hughes, you could get away with it. But I think with if your primary ball handlers end up being Beheim and maybe Griffin for some unforeseen circumstance, I think you could be in some real trouble there. Yeah. The bottom line is this backcourt's everything, right? Like, they need to play basically the entire game next year it's looking like regardless of if griffin's on the roster or not i mean they're going to have to play the top of the zone i think for the duration now i think you could throw griffin at the top if you really needed 
him to play some minutes there. But kind of going back to your thing about the offseason, we don't want to, you know, it's already tough enough to learn the zone. You don't want to have to make him learn two positions and rotate him back and forth. That's kind of a tough ask for a, for a first-year guy coming into a new system in this type of offseason. So they've got to score night in and night out. And the question becomes, can Buddy Beheim go from the number two to the number one, or does Joe Girard have to be the number one? And that's kind of what we saw when Hughes was out of games is Girard was the playmaker. He was the guy scoring more than Buddy in those instances. So that's my biggest question mark. Regardless of if Griffin or Garrier or whoever takes a step up, you got to get scoring from your backcourt. And I think we can all agree that they've proven they can score in the backcourt, but can they get someone to produce 20 a night from one of those two players? I will say this before we move on and take a break and look at the front court thing side of things with this. I do think the whole Alan Griffin wrinkle kind of provides you a little bit of flexibility too, in a sense, because say Buddy gets injured or say uh, you want to get him a little bit of rest or maybe there's foul trouble or something of that nature. You can slide Griffin out to that top of the zone and make him that, that second guard on the floor, even though you're very limited at the guard position right now because of everything that's gone down transfer-wise. Because then it just kind of resets you to what you thought this season was going to be before Alan Griffin arrived. You thought Quincy was probably going to play the three, and then you're rolling out there with Dolajai and, and Sidibe. Quincy is probably going to play a lot more of the four this year, I would guess, just because of the the fact that, well, again, this is assuming Griffin is playing this yeah, season. it's such a what-if. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it kind of gets you to, I think that's the way we need to speak, though, because that seems to be the way things are trending. But I, I yeah. think with with everything going that way, I I just think that with Quincy, if you have him at the four, I mean, that's kind of where, or at the three, rather, that's kind of where you were expecting him this year. This doesn't change a whole lot. It, it just kind of adds some lineup flexibility to you as well. Yeah, it's very helpful to get Griffin for sure, because he does have the makeup to play both sides of this zone. So, I mean, that's a huge thing looking ahead to next year is whether he will play or not. I think if he doesn't play, like Joe Lenardi didn't have him in his field, his way too early bracketology, way, way too early. And I kind of agree with him. Like if he's not on the roster next year, there's just not a whole lot of scoring. There's not a whole lot of guys you can give the ball too late. And there's a lot of question marks. Right. So, yeah, with Griffin, I mean, it's the big what-if game now, but we should have some some answers to that before the season comes. All right, when we come back, we'll get into the front court side of things because, again, this team is really only going to go as far as the 4-5 and five takes them. So we'll break that down next. All right, let's talk some bigs now here on the Locked on Syracuse podcast because this is a very important position. And this is kind of the position that decided a number of games down the stretch. When Syracuse got good play out of their bigs, they were very, very good, especially towards the end of the season. And and even in that stretch where they went on a a five-game winning streak to near the beginning of ACC play. But... These bigs, again, there's a lot of continuity there. Syracuse has struck out on a couple in the transfer portal so far, 
But you're bringing back Sidibe, who at the end of the season was playing some of his best basketball, registering some consecutive double-doubles, and just playing well, very well defensively and starting to look like the player that Syracuse thought they were getting in Brahma Sidibe. Like, the project started to pan out. But now we have to see that on a more consistent basis for a totality of the season as opposed to for the final five or so games down the stretch. But Sidibe is kind of the the X factor, I feel like, for yep. this team heading into next year. Has there ever been a bigger X factor than Barama Sidibe next year? I mean, it no. feels like he's <laughs> he's everything because what we saw at the end of the year, the big question, it almost like teased us because now it leaves us wondering, was that just a couple games there? And Beheim said, I told him a couple things, and I guess I should have told him those earlier. Well, I, I'd agree with that one, Jim. But, <laughs> you know, you need Brahma to be 30 minutes a night out of foul trouble and be able to continue to improve. I mean, this is his senior year now, and I know he's been bothered by injuries, but this is a guy who came in, sure, with not a top 100 background in terms of an ESPN recruit or anything, but Maryland was after him. Like, he was a relatively good get for Syracuse, and he's just, for whatever reason, not gotten to the point where the coaches thought he was going to until the end of the year. So he is the X Factor next year. I put him at 30 minutes, um, kind of running through a hypothetical minute log in my head of what this depth chart might stack up to be. I said Mark 35 minutes, and I think if Griffin is eligible, and like we said, I think we're operating under that assumption right now, you probably are between starting him or Quincy, and I guess you could put Mark as the sixth man too. I think just for this purpose, I said Griffin is like your sixth man to start the season because the other guys you kind of look at as incumbent guys and you know what you're getting, and then Griffin will have to kind of earn his stripes a little bit. And yeah, I think that's a an interesting way of putting it too, because again, there's going to be a learning curve with everything when we do eventually see basketball back on the floor, or even, I mean, kids getting back to campus. We don't know when that's going to be, and, and that's kind of the huge question mark on the entire 2020-2021 season. It almost makes me think, what is Robert Braswell's role in everything? Yeah. Because... I he knows right. the zone. He he's been in this system now two years. Granted, last year was a redshirt year for him, but he's got familiarity. And is familiarity going to win out in a lot of these situations? Well, given Beheim's history, I think Braswell's in trouble. Like we know he's not gonna play more than seven guys, probably. And eight, right. I'd say, is his max. Now, I'm talking like ACC play. Braswell is probably going to get his chance at the beginning of the year, and that's just what we've noticed. But he's going to shrink the rotation at some point. And the way I see it is they kind of have six starters, essentially. They have six guys that are all average or above average slightly. Like, it's kind of a problem because they don't have a star. I think of, right. not to bring it to a completely different topic, but my high school golf team was this way where if we played like the state championship of the top 12 guys and counted like eight scores, we would have won every year. But our issue was we didn't have anyone that could go low. So we just had a bunch of guys that shot around the same score. And our coach had to decide between about 10 guys that shoot the same score, who to put in the starting lineup each game. That's and you just hope someone's behind. hot. Yeah. Right. I think that's a very interesting have, way of putting it. Right. We didn't have a 
a guy that got hot. We didn't have someone that could shoot 69, 68 like some of the other teams did, and that was so vital because you could count on one guy for each team like that. And Syracuse kind of has Gerard or Beheim, but let's face it, like it's pretty rare that they shoot 68 or 67. It's pretty rare that they're going to put up 30. Gerard may be more likely than Beheim, just the way he shoots and the volume he operates at sometimes. But anyway, that's that's my thinking with this year's team is Griffin has potential, Garrier has potential, but who is going to become that it guy? Because as much as we have seen some teams be successful with like a bunch of guys averaging 9 to 13 points per game, it usually usually need one guy to take that shot at the end of the season. And that's a big concern right now I have because Elijah Hughes is gone. And this is going to be, especially for the Syracuse team, this is going to be who takes the leap. And this is the toughest summer to take the leap. And whether it's Joe Girard or, or it's Quincy, like those are the two guys that you are looking at to take a leap. Sidibe, you kind of know what you're getting. You know Sidibe's ceiling. You don't know JG3 or, or Garrier's ceiling quite yet. I would say you don't. You definitely don't know Garrier's ceiling. You maybe caught a glimpse of it with Joe Girard, but again, he's just a freshman, so you, you don't necessarily know. You kind of know that at his best, Sidibe will get you, what, 15, 10, and, and maybe a handful of blocks. Like, that is a best-case right. scenario for Sidibe, and I'm not saying he's averaging that. I'm saying, like, that's the game he's giving. Like, that's his best game, it feels like. Maybe 15, 12, and 3. Is yeah, and his we can't best. overstate the foul trouble thing for him right. and Dolichai. Like, yeah, they it, have to prove they can stay on the floor. This yeah, because you year. brought up the whole instance of, okay, I'm slotting in Sidibe for 30 minutes. Well, that that's in a perfect world where he is not fouling. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that is the biggest what if. Because, right. I mean... History says that is not going to be the case. He is going to pick up four fouls almost every single night. And you may say, oh, well, four fouls isn't fouling out. No, but it still handcuffs you in the minutes that you can distribute because you don't want him to foul out. Yeah, and I will say, given what we've seen from Bayham, I know I keep saying that, but the bench, like, if you're Woody Newton in his first year, if you're Robert Braswell, if you're John Bolajac, I think Beheim is basically just going to, to going to decide between Edwards and John Bolajac who he liked more in non-conference play and the offseason everything, and then that's going to be the backup center. That's going to be the guy that comes in for 10 minutes, and then maybe he's needed more if there's foul trouble. And if there's foul trouble, John Bolajac might get some minutes like Jesse Edwards got this past season. But in terms of their standard lineup that you know is going to be out there every single game the seven guys are probably griffin and then a backup center to spell sidibe which will i'd say be jesse edwards more than john bull because i don't know we've seen a little bit more from edwards but maybe maybe that's not fair i mean whoever wins that role i think will get that seven spot and then richmond will get a couple minutes like we saw good on and how get in the first half i think so then there's eight guys and that's assuming Griffin plays. If he doesn't play, Braswell's probably going to get a share of minutes if he's healthy. And if Griffin is in the lineup, like I don't really know where Robert Braswell fits in in ACC play. My whole thing, too, with the, the whole Griffin wrinkle is if he pans out to be this great rebounder that we've been promised. Not, or I shouldn't say promised, but if he is kinda. this great rebounder <laughs> that we, yeah, well, you kind of did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, 
if he is this fantastic rebounder, even when he does move from a man scheme to his own scheme, does that change how the center position works too? Are you more confident going smaller? Will will we see more Dolajai at the five? Or dare I even say it, will we see some lineups where, where Quincy is at the five too? Wow. Because, I mean, that could be the flexibility he adds to your lineup. Not just in a sense of giving you size at, at the guard position, but you can have an undersized three and still be confident in the way that your team rebounds because he is such a prolific rebounder. Yeah, Dolajai at the five is intriguing because... Based on what Beheim has said, he's given kind of mixed signals there. Going back to last year where he said, that's the dumbest thing ever, I'd never do that. And then before the year, he basically retracted that and ended up playing him some at the five. And maybe that's because he didn't see the development he wanted to see from Sidibe Edwards and John Bull in those centers. So, I don't know. Obviously, Sidibe is the X factor. Can he stay in foul trouble is a big one. But the other thing is, like when you're looking at transfers for next year, and to bring in that could be maybe immediately eligible. Given what we just laid out there, I think that's partially why it is tough to convince a transfer to come to Syracuse, because the guy they're looking for is someone, obviously you want to get a starter like a Matt Harms or a Tepe would have been, but it'd be nice to add some depth. Well, at the same time, you don't really need it because you already have John Bull. There's who's so many not bodies, yeah. Yeah, it's like they don't have enough depth, but they have too much depth at the same time. And I think that's right. why it's tough to get a transfer to come to the backcourt and it's tough to get a transfer to come to the frontcourt because Beheim's history suggests that you're not if you're not starting, you're not going to play more than five minutes a game, and no one wants to sign up for that for a year. Right. Yeah, maybe you, you pull the, the mid-major guy who just wants to say they're playing in a power five, but... Outside of that, it can be a tough sell. All right. And how much does that help anyway? You know. Yeah, exactly. It gives you bodies and at least gives you a functional practice, uh, to say the least. <laughs> That's true. Next up, we've got some over-under football talk. Vegas released its number for Syracuse. We'll tell you what that is and where we're leaning in the early stages of this offseason. That's next on Locked on Syracuse. So a week ago, the college football win totals came out. Not a lot to gamble on these days, but the win totals are out. When the season starts is a whole nother can of worms because I've seen pretty much, if you can feasibly think about it scheduling-wise, I've seen it thrown out as an option. I know there's the whole, yes, we're going to start on time, but no fans. We're going to play the season starting in the spring. We're going to do a little bit in November, and then we're going to close it out in the spring. Whatever it is, again, the the health of, of humans comes first in all this and should be Absolutely. coming first in all of this. But the when this season kicks off is still a giant question mark. But let's just, for the purpose of the exercise, Tim, let's say the season goes on as planned. And you know what? Let's just say no fans in the stands, okay, okay. To, to at least start. Because I think that is... That is the only feasible way, at least the way I'm seeing it, that we will start this college football season on time. So, yeah, Syracuse, interesting start to the season. I haven't even said the, the win total yet, but they, <laughs> they are marked at five and a half by our friends out in the desert, which for the ACC is amongst the worst. You've got Georgia Tech at three. 
You've got nice. BC at five and the NC State at four and a half. I skipped over them. And then Syracuse and Duke each at five and a half. So in the bottom end of the ACC in terms of, of win projections. Now, when you look at this schedule, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, again, the whole dome renovations, and that's a whole nother thing to to factor into this is the dome going to be ready on time yeah because of the way construction's working our construction projects going to be halted and all that but the orange starting with three of their first four games on the road at bc at Rutgers, then you get a home game against colgate and then at western michigan and kalamazoo so just kind of an unorthodox start to the schedule totally but yeah. definitely four winnable games, especially when you look at the two right out of the gate that are going to be playing with new head coaches. Yeah, and maybe two games without fans, honestly, right. to start the season. So they might get a little bit lucky. I'll say I think five and a half is too low. And I kind of thought about this a lot, and I went through the schedule a lot. I just don't see a world where Tommy DeVito doesn't play in a bowl game. Like, in his Syracuse career, right? I mean, in a true bowl game as a starter. It just feels like that'd be such a letdown. It would be such a letdown if Babers could not get DeVito, a four-star quarterback, to a bowl game two straight years. And that's basically what they're asking with five and a half wins. And given that they're playing Colgate at Western Michigan and Liberty, kind of in your non-con, that right there should be three wins, right? I mean, they'll be At heavy least. favorites in all of those. And Liberty, it's a shame. I don't know if they'll be the a schedule. heavy favorite against BC or Rutgers, but the other two. Oh, no, but like... I'm, t- I'm talking about uh, Colgate, Western Michigan, and Liberty. Oh, okay. Those okay, three okay. specific games. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. So to me, that is three wins that you now are just fighting for three more after that. And BC, Rutgers are winnable. All these games you could really say are winnable except for at Clemson. Georgia Tech at home, I mean, you just rattled off their over-under at three. Like, maybe they surprised some people this year, but that's about as easy as it gets in terms of an ACC game, at least what we're looking at right now. And it's a good draw to get them as one of your other side of the conference games this season. I just I think all these games they this is a pretty easy schedule on paper with the exception of a Florida State at Pittsburgh to end the year. You know, Wake had a pretty good year last year. You you go to Wake. NC State's another team that's below them over under one total and they have them at home. To me, six wins is out there and if you don't get six wins, it's a huge huge letdown from the past 2 years. Yeah, I think I was kind of talking myself into five at the beginning, and you started to sway me, but it all comes back down to the offensive line. Like, we, we can yeah. harp on, on Tommy DeVito all we want. This was one of the worst offensive lines, not just in the Power Five, but in college football last season. And if DeVito's out there getting sacked six, seven times a game, then you, you don't stand a chance to win. And, and those games that you mentioned as – pretty much locks on the schedule they're no longer locks if your offensive line isn't short up because those are the guys those that is where you can you can falter and stumble if you catch a team 
like a Western Michigan or, or maybe even a Liberty where, okay, the offensive or the defensive line on the other side is maybe there's one or two pro caliber guys on the other end and then they start wrecking the game. And then that that's how you lose. That is how you lose those games to teams that you think are automatic wins. And, and for Syracuse, yeah. I mean, if you're losing to those teams at any point, then then you're in trouble because then the bowl is all of a sudden pretty much out the window because if the offensive line isn't playing well then, there isn't much faith that it's going to get better when you go up against teams like Clemson and Florida State and, and Pitt and, and Louisville because that that's where there are legitimate NFL talent guys. Yeah, and like if we played this hypothetical – what are automatic wins? What are games they should win last year? You could easily get to nine or 10 going into the season. And that's what right. a lot of people were projecting. So I hear you on that end a little bit. You you have to prove it. I will say another thing that kind of adds a wrinkle to this is pretty tough timing for Syracuse to be implementing a new offensive coach, a new defensive coordinator, a new defensive scheme in the three, right. three, five. That's totally new to these players and basically making wholesale changes as they should have to their coaching staffs and, you know, putting new coaches in new roles and old coaches in different roles. That's really tough because who knows if any time that they will have to get to know these guys and teach them this complicated defense that is completely different from, especially on the defensive side of the ball, because Babers will still be kind of calling the shots offensively. And they know him, these players that are returning. Defense is a concern for me because I do believe in the 3-3-5, and I think it's a good hire. But will they be able to get to the point where they need to be without an opportunity to have kind of a learning curve here and make some adjustments in the offseason like they should be able to? So that hurts them. And a lot of teams are going to be dealing with that, but not a lot of teams have a new defensive coordinator and a new offensive coordinator and all these coaching changes that Syracuse has. And that's the interesting thing, too, because, I mean, when, when you think about it, think about when Dino Babers came, right? He knew that it would take some time to get his scheme right, and the team did falter offensively a little bit in his first couple of years. But then year three yeah. came, and everything sort of clicked. He kept saying, like, year three, week four, or yeah. it was one of those dates that he but pinpointed. You can't have another process like that no. defensively. Like, you, you cannot go through another kind of turnover like that where you you cannot reset this defense. That, 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 that clock does not reset for them, okay? Right. This has to be something that's picked up relatively quickly, and the timing of everything largely feels unlucky. Because, again, you cannot plan for a pandemic. And right. that is kind of the situation Syracuse is in right now. So five and a half, the total set by Vegas. And we don't know when the season will start, if it'll start on time, if there will be fans in the stands. But that number could get adjusted. Who knows? Maybe games get slashed too. Anything is on the table right. in terms of restarting the sports calendar. So whenever that may be. Uh, we'll be ready for it here on the Locked On Syracuse podcast. All right, so tomorrow on the show, Dane Brugler gives out every year. It's this great NFL draft guide called The Beast, where he has pretty much in-depth breakdowns of anyone that you can imagine possibly being drafted. 
in the upcoming draft. So we're going to look at what he put out on The Athletic, where Syracuse guys go, because as of today, we are a week away from the start of the NFL draft. Wow. So we will be ramping up that draft coverage heading into next week, where we'll also do day by day, we'll, we'll break down players and get to get a, an inside look at, at each of them as well as we lead our way into the 2020 NFL draft. Kind of the first return to normalcy for sports, I feel like. It was NFL free agency, and now mm-hmm. it's going to be the NFL draft. So stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, social distance. We, we're all in this together, and, and we will move through it eventually um, as the, the calendar keeps on moving. So for Tim, I'm Tyler. We will talk to you with NFL draft stuff tomorrow. Tomorrow.